So good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening. I am delighted uh, to welcome all of you uh, to uh, today's IFPRI policy seminar on the latest uh, um, SOFA report, uh, the annual SOFA report, which we all know and look forward to hearing. So the title of the report is Making Agri-Food Systems More Resilient to Shocks and Stresses. The seminar is jointly organized by IFPRI and the FAO as part of our long-standing and continued uh, partnership on knowledge generation for improving food systems outcomes for improving food systems transformation. The topic before us is obviously important and timely. I can pick up one of the key policy recommendations of the report, and it says clearly that agri-food systems must become more resilient to increasing shocks and stresses of diverse origins, both biophysical and socioeconomic. Today, we are realizing that every day, COVID-19 continues to show how fragile, how fragile our food systems are and that satisfying our ba first basic need, which is food, is vulnerable to disruption. We know that these disruptions are, combined, are caused by a combination of factors that, has, they have been, um, that have been triggered by COVID-19. COVID-19 has increased uh, poverty around the world, hunger around the world. By, we now know that more than 100 million, maybe 150 million people more, people have become uh, poor and hungry, uh, largely attributed to the pandemic. It has come through an impact, uh, the COVID has, 19 has impacted us through a loss of income, particularly among the poor in the world, and disruptions of supply chains. New disease variants, severe weather, conflict, other shocks continue to cause frequent disruptions of supply chains that reverberate around the world. In the past few weeks, we have had several cases, several examples of how food systems have been um, disturbed by these factors and how they have affected uh, food systems, food supply chains, both in rich countries and poor countries. Food systems vulnerability are, of course, most worrisome in areas with poor resources. Vulnerabilities are biggest where supply chains were more poorly integrated and poverty and market informality have a greater presence. The report is clearly also a very timely response to the UNFSS, the United Nations Food Systems Summit of 2022, which called for making food systems resilient to vulnerabilities, shocks and stresses. It was one of the five central objectives of the summit for well-functioning, healthy, sustainable agri-food systems. I'm sure we will hear more from Maximo, from Maximo Torero, uh, FAO's chief economist, but I think the resilience indicators that are proposed by the report will be particularly helpful in identifying food systems vulnerabilities and monitoring progress towards food system resilience. I am not gonna go into the uh, list of indicators I think that will be presented uh, during the presentations. I think an important further contribution of uh, the report is it takes, uh, that it takes a true food systems approach, okay? A food systems approach, looking at this from a comprehensive perspective. It is, I think, important in general. It's also very important for my own institution, IFPRI and the broader CGIR, which are really embracing this new food systems agenda in our research, in our analysis uh, going forward. One of the factors, one of the uh, central focuses of the report is on diversification of food availability and access, and in developing rural livelihoods as key to building resilient food systems and livelihoods. We know, however, that this is easier said than done. If, ex if executed inadequately, diversification can involve 
important trade-off and become sources of new risks of disruptions. I look forward to the presentation by Maximo and by the discussions of the panel. We have really a, a very impressive list of speakers here today, and I'm gonna not use up more time, but I give them the floor. I look forward to the presentation of the key insights during the presentations and to the comments of our eminent speakers on the panel who will reflect on the policy relevant of the report. Thank you all for being here, and I look forward to a very interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Joe. You just heard from Joost Willem, the Director General of IFPRI and the Global Director for Systems Transformation of CGIR. Um, my name is Rob Voss, and I'll be your moderator for this uh, seminar. Um, Joe already set the stage for the discussion, uh, indicating uh, the timely question of how can we make food systems resilient to shocks and stresses, which is the central theme of the 2021 uh, State of Food uh, and Agriculture Report of FAO. We'll next hear from Maximo Torero, the Chief Economist of FAO, and uh, who is the main responsible for the SOFA report to introduce the report's main findings. Maximo's presentation will be followed by a panel of eminent experts to assess the relevance of the report for policies and for investment priorities uh, on how we can make food systems more resilient in practice. I'll introduce the panelists as they take the floor. After the panel discussion, you, uh, the audience, uh, will have time to pose questions to Maximo and the panelists. Last but not least, Justin Brown-Hall, the director of the FEO Office for North America, will give closing remarks. Depending on how you're connected to this event, you can submit your questions as we move forward with the seminar to um, ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag uh, askifpre on Twitter. You can, as mentioned, uh, submit your questions throughout the event. So without further ado, um, it's now my pleasure to hand the floor to Maximo to introduce the main findings of the report. And Maximo Torero, Chief Economist uh, of FAO, you have the floor. Thank you very much, uh, Rob, and thank you very much, Joe, for the kind invitation. And thank you for the Washington office of FAO for being here and co-leading co this. So let me, let me share my screen uh, so we can move on, on the idea behind this presentation. And as it was already mentioned uh, by Joe, uh, the theme of the SOFA 2021 is making agri-food systems more resilient to shocks and stresses. And, and please know that we talk about agri-food systems in the reporter is the definition, but basically agriculture is more than just production of food, it's also production of other means of income for farmers like fibers, and other types of commodities. So we need to look at the overall uh, production of the agri-food systems. And the COVID-19 pandemic uh, raised concerns about the fragility of the agri-food systems, and it exposed how a shock of global proportions can occur suddenly and spread so rapidly, and how this sector will react to it, and how many livelihoods were at stake because of the situation. So what we are going to do today is I am going to look into the elements of the report, which clarifies the meaning of agri-food systems, resilience, and provides a framework for analyzing it. It proposes a way of measuring the degree of national agri-food system resilience through a suite of indicators for over 90 countries. Indicators are intended to assess national agri-food systems capacity to absorb the impact of a shock and provide guidance to policymakers on areas for improvement. These indicators are linked to the four key functions of the agri-food systems that is to ensure robust primary production, 
availability of food, physical access to food, and economic access to food. The report also identified the main factors underpinning resilience in rural households. It also provides guiding principles for building resilience. Specifically, it emphasized the importance of preparing for disruptions using a system-wide multi-risk, multi-actor, and multi-sectoral approach. This is the first time we look at resilience from a whole agri-food system perspective at different levels and not just at the household level like we traditionally used to do. Agri-food systems are a vast involving the interlinked activities of primary production of both food and non-food products, as I mentioned before, and all the other activities that bring food to, consu to consumers' plates. Such vastness makes agri-food systems vulnerable to shocks and stresses of different origins, environmental, economic, or social. However, resilient agri-food systems manage to withstand such shocks. Specifically, resilient agri-food systems sustainability ensure the availability of and access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food for all over time in the face of any disruptions. Agri-food systems resilience focuses on six dimensions of food security, but more specifically on stability of access and sustainability to ensure short and long-term food security and nutrition. Now, to be resilient, agri-food systems depend on five distinct capabilities or capacities. The first one is preventive. The second one is anticipative, then absorptive capacity, adaptive capacity, and transformation capacity. The main focus of this report is on absorptive capacity, the ability to withstand shocks and stress and facilitate the bouncing back. So if the shock happens today, how well we are to absorb that shock? FAO is also working on preventing an anticipative capacity. We are working on 12 indicators of early warning that will have some predictive power, we hope, that will help countries to be preventive and to anticipate. And we are also working together with our partners on how we can accelerate and adapt and transform and increase the resilience to be able to immediately recover from this shock. But today we are going to focus only on the absorptive capacity of and how resilient are, you, are, are the countries with this absorptive capacity. The report proposes four newly developed indicators to measure the absorptive capacity and agri-food systems at the national level. The first is the Primary Production Flexibility Index, the PPFI, which measures absorptive capacity of a country primary agricultural sector. The second indicator is the Dietary Sourcing Flexibility Index, the DSFI, which measures the absorptive capacity of food supply. The third measures the resilience of transportation networks, which is essential to ensure for physical access to food. And we saw during COVID-19 how important was this and how important the logistical part was. And the last indicator measured economic access to a healthy diet during times of crisis, building on estimates from the State of Food Security and Nutrition 2021. The first indicator, the Primary Production Flexibility Index, the PPFI, aims to measure the absorptive capacity of a country's primary agricultural sector by looking at two aspects. First, the diversity of commodities produced in the country, and second, the diversity of output markets for these commodities, both domestic and international. The premise is that the most diversified is the, com the composition of both production and marketing channels, the easier it is to absorb a demand shock by this country. So if we look at this graph, country B has a higher absorptive capacity than country A because it produces a more diverse set of commodities and then sells them on a more diverse set of domestic and international markets. This indicator can help policymakers determine which elements of production and trade add to the absorptive capacity 
and hence contribute to the resilience of the country's primary production sector. The, ind the indicator was estimated for 181 countries. And here we present the results. And countries are placed very differently in the graphic. However, some patterns emerge. Some countries, those in the blue oval, which include China and India, show a very low level of export diversification and often a high dependence on domestic markets. The countries in the green oval, many high-income countries, show a higher degree of export diversification, often combined with a relatively high diversity of domestic production. Many countries, however, those in the purple oval, which are mostly low-income countries, rely essentially on more limited domestic production diversity for their absorptive capacity, with little export diversification and a low reliance on export markets. And these, for example, are many of the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, where most of the food groups that they need are being imported. However, it is important to underline that while high value of the PPFI is positive in terms of ensuring resilience, there is no optimal composition of the portfolio of the PPFI. Clearly, a huge country such as China can hardly be expected to see as a large a contribution from export diversification as a small export-oriented country such as the Netherlands. In summary, the PPFI is a useful tool for countries to analyze their specific situation in terms of vulnerability and possible entry points to improve resilience. The second indicator, the dietary sourcing flexibility in the DSFI, in a certain sense, turns the previous indicator around. Indeed, it captures the multiplicity of different pathways through which unit of food can be made available to a consumer. So this availability of food. This diversity of pathways of food supply has three components. The diversity of domestic production for the domestic market or to be exported, the diversity of imports and trade partners, and the diversity of food shops held from the previous years. Stock, sorry, food stocks. Again, country B has a higher absorptive capacity than country A, because not only has country B produces more a more diverse set of agricultural commodities and holds a more diverse set of food reserves, but it also imports from a more set of diverse set of countries, which allow them to be able to have different challenges if a, ch a choke occurs in any of those countries. The more the options in terms of sourcing food, the higher the absorptive capacity you will have. And here we represent this DSFI index for 153 countries, which are depicted in the graph. The diversity of domestic production and exports is represented on the y-axis, the diversity of imports represented on the x-axis, and the diversity of stocks is represented by the size of the bubble. The diagonal lines, again, sum the import and production diversity. From the graph, we have two main results that we can see. First, countries' diversity diversify their products, their food supply in different ways, either through domestic production or relying more on imports or even buffer stocks. The DSFI value depends only to a certain extent on country size or country income. Again, as for the PPFI, a high overall value indicates a high level of absorptive capacity. However, there is no universal optimal composition of the index in terms of the contribution of the different pathways. Rather, the index can be used by countries to analyze and understand their vulnerability and possible entry points to improve resilience. One third indicator measures countries' food transport network resilience. Robust transportation networks are key for ensuring physical access to food local level. Yet, for half of the 90 countries analyzed, the closure of a critical transportation route could increase travel time by 20% or more for food diverted from the disrupted route, potentially affecting food costs for 845 million people. So the impacts could be huge. The effects are more local in some countries than in others, 
and the share of population potentially affected ranges from 25% in Nigeria to 78% in South Africa. Finally, we also measured the economic access to food for 143 countries in 2019, which can be affected by chokes. We found that approximately 1 billion people will be unable to afford healthy diets if their incomes were reduced by one third. This adds to the 3 billion people who we already reported in 2021 that cannot afford a healthy diet. The vast majority of the 1 billion people at risk are found in middle-income countries and in low-income countries where already a large majority cannot afford a healthy diet. And this can be seen in this map where we show the distribution of where in the world these people will live. The continuous functioning of the food supply chains is also essential to ensure a stable and sustainable flow of food for all. Diverse, redundant, and well-connected food supply chains enhance agri-food systems resilience by providing multiple pathways for producing, sourcing, and distributing food. Acknowledging that there are different types of food supply chains around the world classified as traditional, transitional, and modern, and within them businesses of varying scales, they require each different business strategies and priority action areas that facilitate adjustment during a choke and contribute to resilience. Yet, for almost all types of food supply chains, building resilience will require costly investments and may entail trade-offs with efficiency and with inclusiveness. Mostly large companies with sufficient investment capacities can overcome the trade-offs with efficiency. However, many small and medium agri-food enterprises risk being pushed out of business as they lack these capacities and the consequent increase in unemployment and loss of livelihood like we saw during COVID-19. So we need to carefully consider these trade-offs so to be able to minimize them, even if they can become or try to turn them into synergies. Also, we look at the household resilience, which is a typical issue that we have done through our RIMA tools. And here we found that access to education, access to basic services and asset ownership are important strategies at the household level. And interventions are especially key to households comprising mainly women. But again, our goal here was to look at the whole agri-food systems. So let me close with the major conclusions. So three guiding principles can help us to build more resilient agri-food systems. Resilience involves preparing for disruptions, particularly those that cannot be anticipated. Entry points include enhancing the resilience of national agri-food systems through ensuring diversify, diversify in food sources and output markets, managing connectivity through more robust transportation infrastructure and logistics, allowing for diverse food supply chains and heterogeneous suppliers, and enhancing the resilience capacity of small scale producers and vulnerable households through improved access to assets, diversified sources of income and social services. Second, resilience building is a system-wide multi-risk, multi-actor and multi-sectoral approach. This requires analyzing of each component of agri-food systems and the specific risks they face. Doing so may require to expand and improve country level information to better inform policy design and guide investments. Third, broader policy issues have important implications for resilience. First and foremost, guaranteeing access to healthy diets must be a priority. Other important areas are health and education services, policies to promote gender equality, and policies to promoting sustainability of agri-food systems through a stewardship of the environment. With eight years to go until 2030, action on each entry point is needed if we are to build resilience and achieve zero hunger. Thank you very much, and back to you, Rob. Um, thank you very much, uh, Maximo, for a very clear and insightful presentation, uh, both presenting how we can better conceptualize and measure 
uh, resilience uh, of food systems, uh, agri-food systems, as well as um, how we, out of that, so we can uh, build principles for and guidelines for policy making uh, that would um, uh, both help policymakers and I assume also uh, private sector uh, investment uh, decision makers to build more resilient uh, food systems. Um, so it's a very rich report, very timely, uh, but also will give rise to uh, important discussions and different perspectives on how to move forward uh, on that agenda. For this, we have um, a panel of uh, four speakers uh, that uh, from different angles will reflect on the report's findings. Uh, let me introduce the speakers to you. We'll start with Alexius Butler, the Acting Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security of USAID. And she will be followed by Julian uh, Lampietti, the Practice Manager of Agriculture and Food Global Practice at the World Bank. And he will be followed by Professor Tom Reardon the, uh, of the Department of Agriculture, Food and Resource Economics at the Michigan State University. And last but not least, um, Danielle Resnick uh, will be the fourth speaker. She is um, associate with IFPRI, but currently um, a senior research fellow at the Global for Global Economy and Development at the Brookings uh, Institution. Before I give the floor to the first speaker, uh, let me remind you that we would like to hear from you to participate in our Q&A sessions that will follow the presenter's remarks. Please submit your questions to ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter. So let me start the panel discussion and uh, raise a question to Ms. Um, uh, Alexis Butler. Um, Alexis, could you reflect on the SOFA report recommendations for addressing resilience as well as where they align with the USAID's uh, approach to resilience and food security? Over to you, Alexis. You have the floor. Great. Thank you so much, Rob, for the introduction and um, the question. And I'd also like to thank IFRI and FAO for hosting this important dialogue and, and and to thank all of you for your partnership in strengthening the tools and analysis that decision makers need to build the resilience of agri-food systems. It's really great to see this report on the, um, on the state of food security and agriculture. And I know the extent to which the priorities and recommendations in the report align with USAID's resilience and food security objectives. At USAID, we strongly agree with the importance placed on policy and decision-making in the face of crises, and that women all too often pay the heaviest toll during and after shocks. USAID's Administrator Samantha Power has identified gender equality and women's empowerment as among her top priorities for the agency's plans to increase the share of work done at USAID in support of gender equality. We also support the elevated attention to accessibility and inclusion. USAID leverages diverse approaches, approaches to strengthen resilience and increase self-efficacy, which we define as the belief of one's own capacity, sorry, the belief in one's own capacity, especially among women and youth. As an example, our approaches strengthen self-efficacy and social cohesion through empowering women's savings groups and fostering dialogue 
among pastoral groups to mitigate potential crisis, to mitigate potential conflicts related to land and water resource management and use. And finally, we employ all these approaches with an elevated attention on local systems. All of these themes are reflected in the US government's newly released global food security strategy. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, we can put a, a link for it in the chat, uh, as well as USAID's resilience policy, which we're updating this year. Um, and I'd like to share just a, some key ways in which USAID has and continues to strengthen resilience globally, if you'll indulge me for a second here. During the pandemic, we expanded our programming to strengthen COVID-19 analysis and mitigation through activities such as tracking countries, policy responses, um, and tracking countries' policy responses, and uh, providing innovative surveillance measures to capture the pandemic's impact on food systems and supporting our local partner, Academia 2063's analysis to identify COVID-19 related food insecurity hotspots across Africa and improve um, countries' responses to COVID-19 to minimize food system disruptions. In addition to COVID-19 response, we've strengthened safety nets for families with financial services and economic growth opportunities. And um, I have a couple of examples that I'd like to share with you. One of them is um, focusing on USAID's investment of approximately $400 million over eight years in the Partnership for Resilience and Economic Growth in Kenya that supported strengthening of governance systems, disaster risk financing and investment in private sector capital. This initiative was used as a model to inform the government of Kenyans ending drought emergencies policy. And as a result, leveraged $8.1 billion of investment from the government of Kenya over a 10 year period. The program also aligns with other donor investments and has generated benefits for the private sector. For example, livestock sales and prices were maintained when a drought hit in 2018. And similar to what Maximo mentioned earlier regarding transportation networks, USAID's complementary investments include road infrastructure that connected northern arid land livestock markets via traders to the Nairobi markets where demand for meat was harder. It was higher, excuse me. A USAID survey also found that our investments through the partnership strengthened local markets and supported 700,000 people in building assets to increase their ability to weather chronic shocks and stresses. Additionally, the partnership's collective efforts achieved a 12% reduction in the depth of poverty and improved um, nutrition outcomes for women and children in nine counties in Kenya. Looking ahead, USAID is playing a key role to advance the Biden-Harris administration's ambitions to bolster climate resilience. To address climate shocks, we're working to implement the President's Emergency Plan for Adaptation and Resilience, or PREPARE, uh, which uh, the acronym, just a shortened version of it, announced, which was announced at COP26, that has the, has the goal of helping over half a billion people in developing countries adapt to and manage the impacts of climate crisis by 2030. Improving policy plans is a central role of this, of this effort. As one example of our contribution to prepare, Administrative Power launched the Comprehensive Africa Climate Change Initiative, to, which is designed to help African countries implement their national determined contributions in a way that improves system resilience, systems resilience. 
We're also proud supporters of the, of the Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate, which is working to increase investment in climate smart innovation, research and development to help countries adapt to climate change. Um, we also increased um, investment in climate smart agriculture and development is essential for us to help countries prepare for a warming planet, quite honestly. AIM for Climate is a pioneering effort led by the United States and the United Arab Emirates that is focused on increasing investment and enabling greater public-private and cross-sectoral partnerships to drive climate-smart agriculture and food systems. This initiative has garnered global momentum with more than 80 partners, including 33 countries. The United States will mobilize $1 billion over five years for AIM for Climate. Within those years, that time period is 2021 to 2025. USAID is working, to, working in concert with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and State Department's Special Presidential Envoy for Climate on AIM for Climate. And as you've probably heard our administrator reiterate, USAID has renewed and enhanced our commitment to inclusive growth, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and local system strengthening with emphasis on women's and youth empowerment, indigenous peoples, and working with local partners. So quite honestly, the SOFA is a welcome addition to this dialogue. And I look forward to hearing more from the rest of the panelists on their inputs uh, regarding the indicators and also in learning how we at USAID might be able to, um, to utilize these indicators in, um, in our future programming. So thank you so much again for having me here today and for including USAID in this discussion. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Alexis, for this intervention. And it's, it's great to see that, in fact, uh, USAID is already uh, applying several of the principles that are laid out in the recommendations of the report, and particularly also uh, making this link to uh, not just in uh, strengthening food systems and their resilience, but also empowering uh, the vulnerable population groups in order to um, be able to be resilient and have uh, also resilient livelihoods uh, within more resilient food systems. So, and also thank you for giving uh, several concrete examples of how this could be done. So hopefully in the further discussion, we can pick up from, from those examples. So let me turn now to our next panelist, that's Julian Lampietti of the World Bank. Um, I have several questions for you, Julian. Um, could you reflect on the report's main recommendations regarding uh, how to better integrate and diversify food supply chains as a key way to improve resilience. Uh, how would this fit the World Bank's lending policies for sustainable agriculture and food system? And do you see this general recommendation of a more diversified food system as sufficient to help all vulnerable rural households build resilient uh, livelihoods? And lastly, would you also see any trade-offs between the recommended resilience strategy and environmental sustainability. Over to you, whole set of questions, Judy. Thank you very much, Rob, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. Thank you for joining, and a huge thank you to IFPRI for inviting me to this, and a big congratulations to Maximo and the FAO for a, a very good report. And uh, there is a lot to agree with in this report, and it's gonna be tremendously useful in our dialogue uh, with the countries we work in. So Rob has given me uh, four questions, all of them very challenging. 
And uh, let me see if I can try to go through this and go through it quite quickly. So without um, continuing the accolades for uh, this wonderful report, um, I think a very important conclusion it puts forward is the importance of focusing on the details. And uh, that comes through the report in terms of saying, look at the country context and the supply chain context, because at a very general level, well, there's nothing to disagree with in terms of uh, integration and diversification. I think it's very important to recognize that integration uh, does come with some potential risks. And I'll talk about this a little more later, but these risks can involve concentration. The more integrated markets get, sometimes they get much more concentrated. Uh, and diversification can also come at a cost. And I think, uh, you know, uh, Tom will uh, talk about sort of uh, capital accumulation so that you can pivot your supply chain. But, you know, doing all of those things is not uh, free of charge. And so there's, there's costs in terms of efficiency in terms uh, if you want to diversify. So, so I really like the fact that the report is nuanced and emphasizes the need to look at each supply chain and each country context in order to understand uh, what kind of recommendations to make. In terms of where this fits uh, with World Bank lending policies, um, so we do about $20 billion, or we have a $20 billion portfolio and we do about $5 billion a year in the agriculture and food space. And approximately 50% of that money goes into uh, value chains and value chain developments of various kinds. And the two areas where most of that money goes are really around improving logistics, which is super consistent with what uh, Maximo recommends in the report, uh, and storage, also consistent with what's um, recommended in the report. And then the third part is around innovation. And um, the emphasis of that essentially $10 billion in commitments is really uh, for smallholders and SMEs and how do we scale uh, different investments and opportunities so that they benefit from integrating into these markets. And some examples of what we do include uh, productive alliance models where groups of small farmers can get together to create more fluid um, supply chains and value chains and work with different entrepreneurs and suppliers to markets. Another area where we're doing a lot of uh, work is around creating innovation funds and systems at the country level. And we're in the process of discussing, for example, with uh, the MITD lab, how we can scale up some of the really inexpensive and innovative technologies around cooling for supply chains and other things like that. And how do you take that into a country, get the private sector engaged and see how you can scale it up. Another good example is our results, uh, our work around AgResults, which is a program which sets certain goals for the private sector to meet like let's do a brucellosis vaccine and then it awards money to companies that try to uh, achieve that result. So let me go to the third question that you ask, which is, is this sufficient to help vulnerable households? And 
I think only if the markets work and are open and transparent will this actually help the small and vulnerable households. And this takes me back to the point about concentration. So uh, you see some cattle behind me that I managed to get to send stock still uh, in this picture. Um, and you know what we've noticed in the US is that the market for beef goes through four companies that control something like 80 to 90%. And uh, so a cattle farmer like myself does not benefit from the current spike in beef prices that we are seeing in the grocery store. In fact, all of that is captured by the companies that are running those big four supply chains. And so uh, in order for the benefits of these policies to accrue to both the producers and the consumers, you need to make sure that there's a lot of competition in these supply chains and that they don't become overly concentrated that data is shared, and that you combine sort of the long and the short chains as, as Tom talks about it, and make sure that at the country level, you have the right mix of horizontal and vertical chains. So let me go to the fourth point, which is um, the trade-offs between resilience and sustainability. Um, the challenge ultimately is how do we make sure that producers are remunerated properly for undertaking these actions and that uh, you know, this doesn't just translate into higher prices at the end of the day for consumers. So doing this uh, does require, as the report notes, uh, maybe providing more direct transfers to the household level, uh, you know, so that they can get the right food and also providing transfers to the producers for undertaking those sustainability actions. And of course, the big challenge is how do you increase sustainability in the actions throughout the value chain? And that's a part that we're really starting to focus on now. And so how do you reward different companies for undertaking the right actions and we have a great program with the Global Environment Facility called FULUR around how to do this. So with that, thank you very much and looking forward to hearing all of these exciting presentations. Over to you, Rob. Thanks very much, Julian. And so clearly also the bank is already working in yeah, helping build resilience. Um, I also like to yeah, you flag the importance of uh, looking at risk in the system, uh, the way you integrate uh, food systems and supply chains and uh, also the way you diversify them. Uh, there can be risk uh, involved there and uh, that we uh, need to address uh, properly. Um, so thanks for that. Um, um, you already sort of introduced our next panelist, um, Professor Tom Thomas Reardon. Um, Tom, you have done enormous amounts of work on the rapidly changing food supply chains in developing countries during the COVID 19 pandemic supply chains have shown quite a bit of resilience as well as innovative capacity to adapt and circumvent major disruptions. Vulnerabilities remain, of course, but farmers and private food businesses have shown to possess quite a bit of that adaptive capacity. So from this perspective, how useful are the proposed indicators for decision-making by food system actors uh, themselves? And where would you see the supportive government policies would come in. Uh, 
And also how useful would you see the diversification as a key principle for achieving resilience since this may entail multiple pathways for improving supply chain functioning and hence policy guidance building on that principle may not be that straightforward as it seems. So what are your thoughts on that, uh, Tom? Thank you very much. Uh, and Maximo, I loved the SOFA report. It was a joy for me also to be a contributor to that report. So I just have a few ideas with respect to Rob's questions. The first general point is to stand back from the past two years of the COVID uh, shock and think about the past 25 years of, <clears throat> and think about how resilient and dynamic uh, the private sector has been during that time in, in building food supply chains, both in Africa and in South Asia and Southeast Asia, where I'll focus my, my comments. When you think about it, the track record has been one of dynamism and resilience. 25 years ago, Africa and South Asia had a very low share of urban areas in total food systems and a relatively high share of subsistence agriculture. 25, 30 years later, nowadays, urban areas have already 60% of the total food consumption in these countries. And of the, in the rural areas, which are 40% of total food consumption, a half <clears throat> to two thirds of consumption is purchased. So food supply chains have gone from very small to extremely important to basic food security in these countries. Only 20% is subsistence. And so overall, 80% of the food is being purchased from the private sector. And that private sector is in those countries is 80% small and medium enterprises, SMEs, and 20% large enterprises. So we're looking at a very dynamic and resilient sector. 90% of the total food consumption in those areas is domestic supply chains. Only 10% on average is imported. And in big countries like India and Nigeria, less than 5% is important. So really these domestic supply chains have become important and they've grown. If you think about Africa, 800% growth in 25 years in the rural urban supply chain. Southeast Asia, 1,000%. And now if you put this growth in look past back in this history of the 25 years, there's been a series of shocks. COVID is just a recent one. There's been obstacles of tremendous transaction costs and issues within the context. And yet the companies, small and large, have fought their way through this and pivoted and been flexible and stood up and delivered food for these tremendous regions. So keep that general resilience and dynamism in mind. And then focus in second <clears throat> on the past two years of the COVID shock. Again, really, from what we're seeing in the reviews of all the, of the studies, the small and medium enterprises, the SMEs and the large enterprises continued in general, with exceptions, to be dynamic and resilient. So despite being buffeted by lockdowns and reductions of demand for three, four months at the beginning, in the studies, we've often seen that they've stood back up on their feet, shook themselves off and continued, and even resumed the levels and volumes of sales that they had before COVID. Okay, so we've seen in general, although there's been also 
bankruptcies and exits, a general trend of resilience. Okay, but they had to do basic changes and adaptations in their business model, and many of them did. And as Julian mentioned, uh, and I would have had cattle also behind me, but uh, they, they ran away at the last moment. I was, it was a very difficult morning here. Uh, but basically you see these companies have done pivoting, which is the business management term for sudden rapid change. And they haven't done it alone. There's been co-pivoting by supply chain partners. Let me give you one example quickly, which is the, there's been, when people started to not go to restaurants, not go to retail, there was a rapid and vast shift to e-commerce in many areas, okay, and delivery of food. And the retailers did this, the e-commerce firms did this, and helping them, because it would have been impossible without the help, co-pivoting by delivery intermediaries and this extremely important sector called third-party logistics. They retooled, they started to deliver food. If you see an example, like in India, a firm called Swiggy, began to deliver food for 40,000 small and medium enterprises during this time. So you saw this tremendous pivoting that occurred. And you also found that in several countries, their resilience capacity and achievements were based on accumulation of building of muscles over a decade or two already responding to shocks. Let me give you an example. If you think about the South Africa citrus uh, growers, they had been constantly having to pivot to comply with massive new regulation changes and shifts in their business mode due to uh, black spot disease demanded by the European market. And as they shifted, when they came to the, uh, to the uh, COVID shock, uh, as explained in our surveys, they said, well, this is just one more shock. We've already built up the muscles to be flexible, to diversify, to respond to the shocks. And so as you build up these muscles and reply to one shock after another, you're more able to be resilient in the future. Third general point is that this is not at all a rosy picture because there are obstacles and challenges that bring us, uh, Rob, to the government point, okay? Uh, there have been hurts, there have been bankruptcies, and sometimes it's been related to what government did wrong in the short run and what they didn't do enough of in the longer run, okay? And that points to roles for government and for donors. On one side, we found a very ex ex interesting example where short-term constraints on resilience imposed by poor decisions of governments with respect to what they rated as essential versus non-essential. This comes from work uh, that Sawita Liverpool Tassier at Michigan State, newly with BIFAD, and uh, uh, did, and I was privileged to participate. And we found that uh, with the lockdowns, the government had declared as non-essential third-party logistics and created a big problem for them to move. What was missing, and Julian had mentioned this, the lateral and, and vertical, the food chains that are these vertical supply chains are very dependent on lateral supply chains at every point of, for example, third-party logistics. 75% of all the maize, which is the main product eaten in Nigeria, 
35% of all the maize in Nigeria is moved by third party logistics. 4% of urban traders have trucks. Okay, so they depend on this gigantic sector. And that sector was declared non-essential or there was ambiguous, ambiguous um, regulations related to it. And basically it started to grind to a halt and strangle the vertical supply chain. So the key is, as Julian was saying, know the details of your supply chains, know how much they've transformed. Understand that now there's a huge vibrant third-party logistics warehouse rental market and a trucking market in Nigeria that needs to continue to function. That's a detail, but a gigantic detail. We found with many governments, they didn't know the details about how the food system was functioning. And uh, finally, in the longer term, what we found is that where resilience was most active and most successful was where there was the blood and the bones of the food system were assured. Okay, the, the, the bones of the food system are the roads and the wholesale markets. The blood of the wholesale system or the wholesale of the food system are the wholesalers and the logistics firms. Okay, all of that has to keep running. And the crucial thing for diversification, for resilience, for dynamism is investment in the bones and investment in the business environment that allows the pivoting and the shifting and the flexibility and the business choices that make sense to be made. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Tom. And um, very clear and so, yeah, your emphasis again on, on the details, knowing how the food system uh, works um, and maybe yeah, the critical role for governments to play is uh, on strengthening the bones of the system and to make the blood flow and uh, uh, rotate uh, well, with, circulate well within the body of the food system, if I may take your um, uh, an analogy uh, correctly. So thanks for that and reminding us of, uh, of yeah, the, the existing capacity of, of food systems uh, to respond to uh, and to address uh, crisis and stresses uh, on the system. Um, before I move to the next panelist, let me remind uh, you, uh, the audience, to submit your questions as we proceed with the discussion. You can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag askifpre ask on Twitter. Let me now turn to Daniel Resnick. Um, to follow up on some of the issues raised by Tom and by, by Julian and Alexis, uh, and given your work on political economy, on agriculture and food policies and the resilience of food system actors during COVID-19, uh, could you reflect on those trade-offs that were mentioned before and hence possible political resist resilience that, or resistance, I'm sorry, that could emerge from strategies that focus on resilience building through diversification and could conflict with uh, certain interests which rely on specialization and market uh, power. And perhaps you could also give some concrete examples of how policymakers could address such possible trade-offs and mediate between the different interests. Over to you, Danielle. Okay, well, many thanks, Rob, for the opportunity to reflect on this impressive report and to be part of this really imp impressive panel. Really enjoyed the discussions thus far. Um, so I'll limit my interventions to discussing two broad issues that I think uh, are relevant to your questions. One is why would there be resistance among different types of stakeholders to such an approach? Um, I'll focus on the role of interest, organizational power, ideas, and beliefs. 
And then secondly, what additional governance dimensions could be considered to further enhance the feasibility of achieving resilient agri-food systems? So first, why would there be resistance to such an approach? And I think uh, the other panelists, um, particularly Tom and Julian have talked about this already. Um, in the abstract, I don't think anyone disagrees with the concept of a resilient agri-food system, but the pathways to achieving such systems do involve, as the report rightly notes, as Maximo emphasized, making policy trade-offs. And once governments make those trade-offs, inevitably some constituencies will be sidelined while others will be favored. And if those who may lose economically in the short term exert organizational power, they can potentially derail the entire policy reform trajectory. Um, and we've seen this many times over the past year here where I'm based in the United States. Um, but I think the recent Indian experience is also highly instructive in this regard. The pandemic very early on in India revealed the vulnerability of relying on fragmented government wholesale markets or mandis, where farmers have been required to sell their products for decades. And this prompted the government under uh, Prime Minister Modi to pursue reforms intended to diversify producers' access to private sector buyers and distributors. Now, while these reforms were largely favored by fruit and vegetable traders, they were opposed by cereal farmers who feared getting undercut by private wholesalers on price. And these cereal farmers, as many of you probably know, were able to mobilize sustained protest against the reforms. They had support from other opponents, including commission agents at the Mandy's and some state governments who gained tax revenue from fees levied against those who trade illegally outside the Mandy's. And so ultimately, Prime Minister Modi had to rescind these bills. Um, the fact that these reforms occurred in a context where party populism and religious nationalism have intersected with fears about a private sector takeover of the food system really eroded the necessary trust among all key actors to negotiate and identify compromised positions. Now, beyond interest in power, we know that policymakers are also um, very much motivated by strong ideas and beliefs derived from history, personal experiences, or elsewhere, uh, that can be difficult to shift to it to support a resilient agri-food system approach as it's conceived in this report. Um, for instance, resilience may be viewed as tantamount to self-sufficiency, leading support for autarkic trade policies rather than this vision of diversified imports and trade partners. The starkic example I could think of was President Buhari's closure of Nigeria's land borders in 2019 to 2021 in a bid to boost industrial rice and maize production, which had been key presidential campaign promises that he had made. And so despite huge costs to the economy, he believes that this gamble paid off. Um, just yesterday in Abuja, he was showcasing his rice pyramids consisting of 1 million bags of domestically produced rice um, that apparently are going to be sold at a discount price to consumers. I think finally, there could be some resistance to this idea of diversification um, from among our own development community colleagues. Several years ago, a revival of heterodox economics and interest in developmental state models led many of us to talk about the need to pick winners to foster structural transformation and to prioritize strategic investments. And this is substantively different than this report's emphasis on the need to effectively hedge our bets through diversification to weather potential disruptions. Now, let me turn briefly to some points about areas of the governance environment that could make policy recommendations from the report a bit more holistic. 
Um, I think the report has a really useful consideration of known and unknown climate, health, and economic risks to building resilient agri-food system policies. I think to be added to such considerations are certainly political risks, such as party polarization and some of the geopolitical tensions we're seeing build at the moment. Um, but also thinking about not known and unknown opponents to certain policies and the political risk to decision makers of ignoring such opponents. So how can champions be identified ex ante um, and dissenters convinced through dialogue, negotiation and reframing of, of the problem and the solution? I think secondly, we need to consider what public sector reforms that would be needed to make this agenda more feasible. Um, for instance, professionalizing custom officers and tax revenue collectors to minimize informal smuggling and agricultural thefts that often deters farmers from taking risks and diversifying into new areas of production. In addition, I think anti-corruption initiatives are also especially relevant, um, particularly when we think about the report's emphasis on investing in redundant infrastructure, which if not managed properly can lead to malfeasance in contract procurement processes and unsustainable debt. And then finally, the report calls for inclusive governance around agri-food systems to hear the voices of the marginalized and to uphold their agency. Um, and I wholeheartedly agree with this emphasis, but I think compared with the discussions on trade and infrastructure and ICT in the report, how to achieve inclusive governance really received short shrift um, in the report. And moreover, it seems a bit discordant with the reality that we've been seeing on the ground. In 2019 alone, at least 50 countries had implemented new laws to constrain the operations of civil society organizations and restrictions on freedom of speech have grown substantially around the world during these states of emergency during the pandemic. So I think if we're genuine about resilient food systems contributing to equitable and inclusive outcomes and increasing agency, um, we need to be supporting political environments that enable producers groups, market traders, women's groups, labor's unions, and other types of bodies to legitimately participate in agro-food system policy processes. And sometimes that may involve speaking truth to power, um, however uncomfortable it may be, in some of the countries where we work. So I'm gonna stop there, Rob, and turn back to you. Thank you, Danielle, that very clear uh, intervention. I'm particularly so following through on what was the previous speaker said about knowing the details of how the uh, food supply chains function if we don't know at the same time well how the political power, the market power uh, could influence uh, decision-making, investment decisions, but particularly also government policies, then uh, the best intended policies may uh, fail. And uh, thanks for make that clear and also how we could overcome those uh, political uh, resistant forms of political resistance to uh, reforms of, uh, of the food system. Um, so this brings us to the end of the, of the panel interventions. So we continue the discussion. Um, we're also bringing in the questions from the audience. Um, I'd indicated that it would give Maximo Torero first a, a chance to respond to some of the comments made by the panelists. Let me do this as follows to Maximo. Let's also bring in a question from the, um, from the audience, um, uh, which you could uh, probably link to some of the comments made by both Julian um, um, and Tom, but maybe also by, um, uh, by Danielle. There's a question from Ramis Despandu that making a food system resilient at the micro level is far more complex than at the macro level. As, uh, any FAO report, any specific suggestions uh, on this? And related to that, what about the private sector's role in building 
uh, food system resilience. Governments can only do so much. Okay, several of the comments um, made by the panelists uh, also talk to this point. So maybe you have uh, some further comments and also insights in what the report uh, has to say about this. Uh, over to you, Maximo. Oh, thank you very much, Rob. Uh, how much time I have? So I, I just a few minutes. We'll, I'll, I'll bring you okay. back. In. Okay. Okay. Very, very, very quickly. So thank you all for for the very nice comments. Uh, and let me let me start by saying that uh, COVID nineteen is like an like an experiment. No, essentially we have a huge shock that affects everybody, and and we can observe what was going on. Now the agricultural sector was extremely resilient to COVID nineteen, and that showed that we have a capacity. What the report is trying to do is trying to focus, as I said, on absorption, no? how it looks at the country level, the situation and how much it can be, can be absorbed. And, and that's why we have the, the four indicators. And we are working now on, on how to recover, no? what will be the, the indicators that we need to look for the adapt, adaptation and transformation. But many of the topics that was mentioned, uh, like the issue of Julian of integration, I think is really important because when you are more interconnected to the markets, also you are more vulnerable to the shocks, depending on the type of shocks. COVID-19 is a strange type of shock, but if I, I am worried about price mobility and, and convergence of prices, then of course, if I am more connected, I could be more vulnerable to that or to any trade, trade issue. So we need to take that into consideration, but of course, as a risk coping strategy, diversification is important, but it has a trade-off and it has a cost. Now, how much you diversify as a different issue, and that's something that we need to look. And there is a difference between looking at the aggregate level of the country than looking at the individual economic unit of the household. The second element, which is extremely important, is the issue of vertical and, and horizontal integration. And I think that's extremely important because it's another way also to cope with these risks. How well are you integrated horizontally, for example, in the case of smallholders, could help and could help to, to cope the risk between them. But vertical uh, integration also could be very helpful because you can have mechanisms to diversify. Now, one advantage that the large agroprocessor have relative to the small one is scope a capacity of a scope, no economies of a scope, because they have more options to where to switch. And that's what happened with Mars and the big companies during COVID-19. They immediately were able to close lines of production and move to other lines. And in many cases, they end in a better situation financially than they were before. Smallholders have less capacity to do that. That's economies of a scope you don't have there, but you can have bigger economies of a scope if you integrate horizontally and vertically. Now, it's also important to understand, and more linked to, 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 to Tom, uh, that five of the calories we consume today have crossed a border. And one third of what we export is a global value chain, meaning that they cost three countries. So yes, it's important that local production and smallholder production plays a huge role and, and the numbers of farmers is huge. But it's also important to understand that the dynamics that we have in the sector are extremely interlinked and, 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 and the mobility is extremely important. And thank you, Daniel, also for, for, for your comments. And I think uh, what, what you mentioned on inclusive governance is extremely important, but very complex at the same time. Uh, it's complex because sometimes inclusiveness could imply that we are not in the first best. So this is like a typical externality you know? because of the huge inequalities and huge asymmetries of information, it's extremely difficult sometimes to be in the optimal or in the Pareto optimal, and we will end in a second or third best because every agent have a different perception and have a different level of information which won't allow you to be able to, to improve in that inclusiveness. So I think inclusiveness has as a precondition the less possible asymmetry of information to be able to integrate decisions, which could be more uh, uh, optimal, which especially is extremely important in the situation that, that we are living uh, today. I stop there, Rob. Uh, no, thank you, uh, Maximo. Uh, maybe we can 
panelists can come back to some of these points um, next, but maybe um, let me take another question from uh, the audience. Um, I'll direct it to Alexia since you spoke about uh, Kenya. There's a question, how can traditional food system be made resilient, especially in a country like Kenya where climatic change uh, is, is evident and the impacts uh, are, uh, are evident. Uh, and maybe also, um, uh, Tom, you may wish to reflect on that point, whether we should uh, try and um, uh, uh, how, how we should try and make traditional food systems more resilient, or should that be in transition towards um, uh, more modern uh, uh, food systems? So first over to you, Alexis, and then over to Tom. Sure, thank you so much. Um, I think that what I'll actually do is I'll probably use another example um, to answer this question. So not necessarily specific to Kenya, but about Ethiopia and a program that we have done in Ethiopia where um, communities that received comprehensive resilience programming were able to do their food security and were able to maintain, I should say, that food security in devastating 2016 drought. Whereas others had, had a, about a 30% decline. And we've heard firsthand from families in Ethiopia that resilience programming makes a difference when they experience hardships. Um, and as an example, we, we supported an individual, his name is um, Habtamu Aragua, and his wife in Ethiopia's highlands to access markets and financial services and build their assets. And they were able to actually graduate from the Ethiopian government's um, safety net program because of these services. And then when their family experienced another drought in 2015, their progress wasn't hindered. So, um, and so quite to the contrary, they actually doubled their earnings again three years later. And these approaches save money by reducing the recovery time when a shock hits or the need for humanitarian assistance altogether. And I think that what we can say, quite honestly, given what's going on in Ethiopia right now, is that what we're seeing is that our robust um, established support for the productive safety net, both from USA, from the RFS's Feed the Future, which is the bureau that I'm in, and the Humanitarian Assistance Bureau have been much better positioned to respond and reduce the impact of crises that are created by climate change um, in a lot of the countries that we're working in. And I also wanted to go back to a point earlier, Rob, that you mentioned about private sector engagement and just note that on the USAID side, we see private sector very much as a significant partner in the work that we're doing overseas. And quite honestly, we have recognized that a lot of the private sector organizations that we're working with were of the more privileged um, group within the countries that they're in. And so, because we're looking at large scale food producers, et cetera. So we are actually adjusting and ensuring, in order to ensure increased accessibility and inclusion, to ensure that we're actually reaching out much more to those subsistence level farmers, those small and medium level producers to ensure that there is greater access and inclusion in the work that we're doing overseas. So hopefully that answers both those questions, but I'm happy to provide more information. Well, thank you, it certainly, certainly does. Uh, Tom, any reflections on what to do with the traditional food systems? Yes, I just had <clears throat> three comments that are a little package. The first one is um, the, uh, okay, it's on. The first one 
is to emphasize that I don't think that market integration is a choice that we can make or not make. It's a trend that's been extremely powerful and will continue. As I mentioned, 80% of all the food consumed in the low and medium uh, income countries is coming from the market, from the supply chains. Only 20% is subsistence food. So it's already very integrated and will continue in this way. If you look at India, we found only 10% of the food is subsistence. 90% of the food in the country is purchased, okay? And also when you think about what areas really escape from or not integrated in the market, we just did some studies of Tanzania and of Senegal and looking at fruit and vegetables where many people feel that uh, people are feeding themselves from victory gardens, from home gardens. We found that in rural areas of Senegal, 75% of the fruit and vegetables that are consumed are purchased from the market. In Tanzania, 65%. In Nigeria, it's about 80%. So the point is that these Rural areas, as well as urban areas, are highly integrated already in the market. That won't turn around. The second point is I agree with Julian, and, uh, and I think also uh, what Danielle said, is that there are issues related to concentration. That while 80% of the food systems in these countries are small and medium enterprises, still the larger enterprises have a foot up, a leg up, in terms of their being able to deal with shocks. For example, uh, uh, an example that resonates in my mind so much that I heard was that CP, uh, Charles Popkin, which is one of the largest agribusinesses in the world, has three ports on the river that leads to and from the largest rice mill in the world in Thailand. The three ports allow it to close down one from a hurricane, two from this next shock, and still have something uh, operating. So redundancy, the ability to invest in redundancy and diversification is greater when you're stronger, okay? And this certainly goes to the point uh, that was made about, uh, that I think Ma uh, Maximo made about larger mills have wider uh, procurement areas and are able to reach out and find new places if something is blocked, okay? And so I agree that there's, there's, a, there's a, over time a concentration bias to resilience. That's why my third point is so crucial, that instead of saying to the so-called traditional sector to crawl back into its hole, it hasn't been. Actually, it's been expanding extremely quickly, as quickly as the modern sector. Instead, level the playing field, okay? This is Alexius's point about the importance of infrastructure investment, logistics investment, this is what levels the playing field for the people. And I love the work by Bart Minton. He's sort of my mentor uh, in a lot of this. Bart Minton of IFRI that worked on uh, Ethiopia. And he showed that when Ethiopia got its highways right and invested in its wholesale markets, the logistic agents and the wholesalers really responded, invested in bigger trucks, invested in moving their operations forward, tripled their capacity, and over 10 years, despite a 60%, uh, a, a cut of a 60% fuel subsidy, they reduced transport costs by 50%. Imagine 50% cut in transport costs, how good that is for small enterprises to stay in the game, okay? To diversify, to reach out. Transport costs are central. And so you get the enabling conditions right, 
the private sector responds, private sector including small, you get the logistics and the infrastructure, the blood and the bones right, and you deal in even more and more of that so-called traditional sector. Let them be heroes. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Tom. As usual, very uh, fired up uh, answer to, to this important question. Um, let me move to another issue that's a, a question from Jennifer Taylor and address it to, to Julian since we talked about the possible trade-offs between resilience and sustainable development. Uh, she asked the question, uh, what could be the role of agroecology agro and agroecological farming systems uh, and underserved small farm populations in building food system resilience? Any thoughts on that, um, uh, Julian? Thanks so much, uh, Rob, and for the question. And hallelujah, did I just hear Tom Reardon say he agreed with something I said? My God, what a good day for me. So um, I think agroecology is a science, and uh, that science has a huge role to play in our understanding of these systems. Uh, clearly, uh, the greater attention we pay to how things happen on farm and doing them in sustainable ways and in climate smart ways will allow us to build more resilient systems. And um, as uh, someone who owns and manages a farm, I can tell you the condition of my soil determines everything that happens on my farm because that determines how resistant my Pasture is to droughts, and that in turn determines how I can cope with those droughts, and my cattle particularly can cope with those droughts, and then how I can manage that. So absolutely agree that um, agroecology, climate-smart agriculture, and all of those kinds of areas offer, offer very important opportunities to look and rethink about how we're supporting the agriculture sector and how to do that in a way that will make it more resilient and more sustainable. And uh, you know, we at the, at the World Bank, we have a whole team that works on this issue and uh, they're uh, starting to integrate in our various operations and really design things so that we can bring this down to the country level where our clients are interested. Uh, I'd like to take um, the opportunity since I have the floor just to sort of ask one question or, or, or raise a question. I, I, I'm really interested in what Maximo was saying about larger companies being able to pivot better than small companies. I, I wonder if that's an empirical question at the end of the day, because you know, as a small business owner and cattle owner, you know, it's pretty easy for me if the market exists to switch from selling to the auction to directly to a slaughterhouse. That just means driving my truck to a different place. But if I were a really big farmer, I'm not sure I could make that switch very efficiently. And if you think about it, you know, once you've invested in all that equipment and all that gear, it's really hard to sort of change your production system all of a sudden. So, you know, maybe if you get really large, it is, but what happens to the ones in the middle? And then last point, uh, Rob, that I wanted to make is, you know, one of the things that I think allowed the ag sector to keep going was the huge infusion of cash that farmers received in places like the U.S., but also many other countries as part of the support uh, 
during COVID. And that has been very, very valuable to helping people maintain their businesses, continue to pay their staff and do other things. And it's a really good sector of a uh, good example of timely uh, public sector intervention to support um, the business. Over. Okay, thanks, uh, thanks, Julian. And so com combining those two hats of uh, policymaker and um, uh, and uh, World Bank official and and, and being a farmer, and a, <laughs> cattle, a cattle rustler. Yes. <laughs> um, I have um, the following questions we'll, we'll uh, address to uh, Danielle, since it comes from Enrico Nano, who's of FVO. So I wanted to ask uh, uh, Maximo Johnson a question, but Daniel, maybe from your perspective, what would be the top would be the top three recommendations for governments to make value chains more resilient to shocks? So and maybe uh, not not necessarily answer it in terms of what would be the recommendation, but how should governments go about that decision making and what, what would be the best ways to um, uh, to build that resilience uh, in food supply chains and maybe also linking to the previous discussion we had on the role of government versus vis-a-vis -vis incentives to the private sector. Over to you, Daniel. Okay, well, yeah, I definitely think Maxima will be a better place to, to answer the question. Um, I can talk about, I mean, one, um, you know, recommendation, which, and, and it goes to my point about, um, you know, that these are contentious, uh, contentious policy decisions. And so kind of knowing ex ante where those sources of resistance might be, um, you know, helps facilitate uh, the reform process moving forward. Um, and so I really think, um, the investment in these types of deliberative councils or um, these kind of business state associations that um, enable kind of a greater flow of information between the government and the private sector um, are really key to invest in. A lot of them are set up and then they don't get the funding to continue functioning. Um, and so there's more kind of personalistic decision making that goes on, you know, uh, you know, the private sector business owner knows the president and has kind of informal personalized mode of decision making, which of course becomes very exclusionary. Those who don't have the money and access uh, can't participate in those processes. Um, so I think that that's that's a key element um, ex ante is to kind of do to, to invest in these types of um, they can be called deliberation councils. Um, sometimes there's even these kind of uh, presidential uh, presidential councils that are set up. Um, and, and thinking about how to expand uh, the membership of those councils to not just include, you know, the top the, the top four uh, companies, but ensuring that it's more reflective um, of the inclusive vision that, that we're talking about today. So I think Maxima will likely have some other uh, suggestions on this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me shift it to, to Maxima as well, but maybe addressing the question in the following way, because there's another question uh, for you, Maximo, by Kevin Cleaver, is to give some country example, or, or rather to say which countries seem to be doing better on resilience, um, and which more poorly, and why, and then maybe highlight within that um, what, what, what difference there was in terms of policymaking that would uh, uh, see food systems in one country function better than in others. Um, over to you, Maximo. Oh, thank you very much, Rob. And let, let me, before I move to, to the last two comments, let me talk about one topic, the issue of concentration that was, was mentioned. I think it's really important to look into this 
because uh, higher concentration doesn't mean it's government owned. No? It means that it allows you to have some economies of scale and there are different ways in you can have concentration. You can have horizontal coordination, which doesn't mean ownership that will allow you to be more concentrated and therefore achieve economies of scale to do certain types of investments. But the issue of redundancy here, uh, we need to think in terms of opportunity cost. No? So in terms of opportunity cost and potential economies of scale, we can assess uh, and try to, to model what will be the potential benefits, expected benefits of having this redundancy versus not having the redundancy under a world where we are living, which is a world with significant uncertainty, and especially in agriculture. Uh, and the complexity of that, of the level of uncertainty, uh, has to be look, taking into consideration how the discount rates will come and in the intertemporal location. So those elements can be measured and we can assess how good it is to have that redundancy or not in this world, which should change or could change depending on the state of the nature we are. So, so we need to think a little bit different, I think, in, in terms of assessing this and not to think about sunk costs. No? So if today exists two or big uh, silos everywhere, that's a sunk cost already. We need to think differently in terms of opportunity cost of new money coming into the game. Now, uh, the, the point of, of Julian, Julian, what I was referring to is agribusinesses. So if I am Mars, I have economies of scope for sure because I have different lines of products. And what happened in COVID-19 was that the demand shifted substantially. And, and also the input side was problematic because of some logistical problems. So in your case, even if you don't have access to inputs, if they are not organic and grassing naturally, uh, then it will be very difficult for you to produce. Agribusinesses have that capacity to switch inputs because of these economies of scope, which allow them to have more resilient and be able to move to different lines of production or to close lines of production and increase intensity of the other. So that, that's what I, I was referring. Now, in the small and large farmers, of course, if a large farmer of production of maize and, and the communication is closed and the port is closed because of COVID-19 lockdown, then that's it. There is not too much of a margin. You have to export hundreds of thousands of tons, so there is not much to do. But I, I was talking of, of economies of, of scope. Now, in terms of, of, the, of the recommendation, and this is, this is linked to what Kevin was doing, one of the things that we tried to avoid in this uh, report was to come up with one average index of all the different components. Uh, we still believe that that would be a mistake. We, we don't want to do a country ranking here where I can say country A is worse than country B in the overall uh, four different elements. What we wanted here is to try to analyze four dimensions of this absorption capacity, which is one of the elements of resilience and trying to give information to countries on how well they were placed. So in the graphs I show, there are countries which perform better in one indicator and worse in the other indicator. And of course, there is a common pattern that the poorest countries perform badly in all four indicators. And that's clearly what we need to figure out a way to change. No? And what we are trying to do is to inform that to the country so that they can decide how much of the public investment they will do uh, to be able to, to do that. So that's the way we believe at least the recommendations should go. How we can help countries to improve this portfolio of indicators so that in, in, in the overall dimensions of the four different dimensions, which measure different things of absorption capacity, they can respond to that. Now, if they do it through the government or through facilitating private sector at different levels of size, that's a different story. And that's where incentives has to be in place. Proper information has to be in place to reduce the symmetry of information that exists today in the world. But also, is something that institutional design needs to be in place. Because yes, you want to avoid also that at the end of the line, small businesses could be depleted out of the market uh, and only medium and large business, especially large, will control the whole market. Something like similar to what is happening with the, with the food, uh, the, the small businesses of food. No? Many of them had to close because there was no way for them 
to subsist unless if they have government support. Now imagine that situation in an economy which is informal, which is most of the developing countries which have huge levels of informality. So they don't receive support from governments because they are informal. They require working capital. And if the economies are locked down, they cannot use the working capital because they won't be able to move their goods. Now, the rural areas are kind of different because it's very difficult to enforce lockdown in rural areas. But imagine in, in, the, in the linkages of the commodities in the value chains, which are peri-urban, where, where most of this is happening, if you lock down the peri-urban areas and you lock down these interlinkages, then this capital of work will disappear. And that's a dramatic change because they don't have access to financial markets. And they will move immediately to poverty and they will go into this vicious circle until they find a way to, to accumulate again their working capital. And that's what happened in Latin America a lot with COVID-19. That's why the numbers of hunger were skyrocketing and also the numbers of poverty because that informal sector was not poor. And because of the shock and the, especially the duration of the lockdowns, the informal sector depleted their working capital and they move into poverty. So it's a lot of lessons to learn and how governments can change uh, to increase that institutionality that will help also to find alternative solutions to formality, which not necessarily is the absolute formality. For me, formality is a continuum. No? So what elements of that formalization process will be priority for a government so that these businesses can have more access to financial markets and so on, so that they can subsist under this type of jobs? Because at the end of the line, a small farmer, a micro entrepreneur of, of agribusiness is a, is a private sector, it's a business. So we need to find ways in which we can cope with those restrictions that they have today because of the huge levels of informality. Back to you, Rob. No, thank you, Maximo. Um, and actually, I think there was an excellent closure of the panel discussion since we run out of time. There are quite a few more questions, although several of them that were posed to you, you've answered, I think, in passing, but uh, hopefully uh, those that are not yet satisfied with the discussion, I recommend you go to the report, the State of Food and Agriculture to, uh, 2021. Um, to see a lot more dimensions along the lines that uh, uh, Maximo was referring to just now. So uh, let me thank uh, you, Maximo, and all the pan panelists uh, for a yeah, great presentation, a good discussion, a lot more to be said, uh, but we've run out of time, unfortunately, and uh, it's now my duty to hand over the floor to uh, Ms. Jocelyn Brown-Hall, who's the director of the FEO office for North America. Over to you, Jocelyn, to make uh, uh, closing remarks to this seminar. Thank you so much. And it was a great uh, hour and a half to listen to all these speakers. I've learned a lot. I've been in the agriculture field for over 25 years, and um, it's always exciting to hear more things. Um, I'm going to try to do a brief wrap up. Uh, there was, there's way too much for me to cover in the next couple of minutes, but um, some nuggets that I think we should all take away from. Um, I'm going to go in a little bit of a reverse order and start with Tom's point about that there's already resilience baked into agriculture systems. And we saw that, we've seen that before COVID, um, and we saw that in the COVID system that uh, farmers and producers can pivot. Um, and as can traders and marketers to all kinds of situations. And it's sometimes uh, we have to get out of their way. I will say for an FAO uh, employee who was in the field when COVID broke out, I was the representative to Ghana and, and based in our regional office uh, as the deputy regional representative there. 
when COVID broke out, we were very concerned that um, it would be just viewed as a healthcare crisis and not as a food, as a possible food security and agriculture crisis. And FAO worked hard with partners such as USAID and IFPRI and others to ensure that um, we did stay stay out of the way of agriculture producers who are trying to do their harvest. We encourage governments to exempt agriculture workers and to keep borders open for trade, sometimes to just do the basics um, to keep the food going. And that brings me to the next point of Julian about the integration of agriculture um, and that very, actually a small percentage of people are are um, subsisting only on their food, that basically agriculture is uh, local, regional, na national, regional, and international, and that there's an integration across markets um, and because if we need the diversification of food and uh, we and whether we like it or not, there is already informal and formal trading going on um, at a constant, constant basis. Um, and then um, I'd also like to point out um, the integration of agriculture in so many different sectors. We heard from uh, various players here, obviously the transportation and infrastructure sector are key to the well-being of the agricultural sector. Um, Maximo talked about education and access to assets uh, at the household level of resilience. Um, but then Danielle brought in um, the integration or the need to ensure that vulnerable populations, especially women, um, are included in the agricultural um, and uh, the agricultural plans, and also talked about free press and civil society. So uh, I don't think there's any single sector uh, that's out there that is uh, touches more other sectors than agriculture and food security. And I hope people take away take that away. Um, and finally, I wanted to just reiterate uh, Maximo's points um, on the uh, on the resilience is one um, agriculture, we need to prepare for shocks, they are going to come and um, they're upon us and they happen all the time, whether it's a tsunami in Tonga or COVID or a, a snowstorm here in Washington, DC. There was a snowstorm that happened at the beginning of the week last week. And by the end of the week, we had no milk in any grocery store because the uh, truckers were either stuck in the snow in the north or they had COVID. So there will be shocks and uh, we need to prepare for them. Um, I've already talked about how our agriculture system is uh, system-wide touching both um, uh, trade everywhere, but also different sectors. And we need to be mindful of that and make sure that agriculture is included in the discussions around resilience. Um, and then making sure that uh, broader policy issues, uh, Tom talked about, um, brought, it, policy issues where um, if you make more roads, then even if the price of gas goes higher, then the private sector will react. Danielle also talked about um, the agriculture, you know, professionalizing customs um, officers to ensure that uh, the free flow of trade. So there's all kinds of policy initiatives that people don't think are, are related to agriculture that really are. So it was a very rich discussion. Thank you so much uh, to IFPRI, to Yo, and to Rob for including all of us. And I think I have been within my time frame. So I thank you very much. And hopefully we can have a more resilient agriculture food systems worldwide.